recent study showed some of the top fears in uh, the United States in the year 2022. 36% admitted to fearing snakes. I, I honestly, I read that and I'm like, that, that's, that number is way too low. The other 64% of people are actually lying. How many of you don't like snakes? Okay, those of you who aren't raising your hand, put your hands up, right? We, we, uh, snakes, uh, there, I know there are a few people who are like, oh, they're nice pets and they, the good snakes eat the bad thing. Like, no, all snakes are bad. Um, I'm among the 34% of people who report uh, fearing heights. Uh, I got the, the annual ritual of putting the Christmas lights up on the roof and getting up on the top of the ladder. I finally got a ladder that's tall enough. That kind of helps when you're not teetering on that step that they say don't stand on and you're sort of on your tiptoes on that with it stacked up on. I don't do that quite. But uh, heights, that's totally not my thing because I don't like heights. I hate roller coasters. Uh, if you, if you want to give my wife a great outing, like, hey, let's go do roller coasters, but I'm going to just kind of sit there. I'll probably get a book, find a nice quiet place in the shade and read. Like, I'm, I'm not joking. That's probably what I would want to do with the day. Uh, not my thing. Spiders came, ahead, came in just one point ahead of public speaking. Spiders, 29% of people report being afraid of spiders. Don't bother me too much. Just smash them. It's all good. Um, on a more serious note, uh, some of the fears we have, those are some, some ones that were like, oh, yeah, I'm afraid of those things, but, you know, I can probably be okay, you know, with killing the spider or getting rid of the snake or staying off the roof. But some of the things that really make us afraid are the things over which we, we really feel the reality that we are not in control. 60% of people report being afraid of loved ones becoming ill. That's a real fear, right? Like, man, my spouse, my loved one, my parents, my kids... What if they become ill? And there's that sense of just helplessness, and there's not much that I can do about it, and I don't want to see that happen. Over half of people fear not having enough money for the future, thinking about retirement, or even thinking about how I'm going to make it through next month or until the next paycheck comes in, or I just got laid off from work, or dealing with inflation and trying to make my budget work with that. The, the, the prices are being inflated, but my income is not reflecting that. We're in a world that is awash in fears. Whether we're talking politics or pandemics, whether we're talking about global warming or nuclear weapons, whether we're talking about fears that are present or fears that, have, that are potential in the future, we are a world that is just chock full of fears. And by the way, the, I think many of these fears have simply been amplified by the fact that we have wall-to-wall -wall access to information. You can jump on Twitter, Facebook, you know, you can get onto the news and they amplify things that maybe don't even affect me, but now I feel that they do because I know about them. I wonder if maybe we would be less fearful if we unplugged, just a, just a thought. Some of the fears we have are quite reasonable. There, fear is a God, in one sense, is a God-given uh, God given sort of reflex we have to make sure we don't do something silly and, and sort of end our lives early. But many of our fears are not. Many of our fears fall in the category of things that we do not control and cannot control. What I want to suggest to you today as we begin our, our Christmas series is that Christmas is the answer to our fears. Now, I don't mean the holiday, like put up just enough Christmas lights and you won't feel afraid anymore. Or put enough sort of tinsel on the tree and that'll sort of get rid of the bad vibes. I mean the reality that is conveyed in Christmas. The reality of the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The reality of God the Son coming into this world, taking on a human nature, living among us, living a sinless life, going to the cross, dying for us. The reality that is packaged in Christmas is the answer. Not just an answer, one of many. The answer to our deepest and darkest fears. That's what I want to argue for today. I want to argue that Christmas, the incarnation, is the treatment for the malady of fear, that it's the, the promise of God with us that drives out our fears. You see, because we cannot simultaneously enjoy God being with us and really being aware of the fact that the creator of the universe, who's in control of everything, is right here with me and still be afraid. Right? It's kind of absurd. Like, God's with me, and I'm aware of that, and he's got it, and he's in control, but I'm still scared. Like, no, those two things can't occupy the same real estate. Brian read Matthew 1 and 2 earlier for us, and we did that on purpose because here's where we're going to be going the next few weeks. In the opening chapters of Matthew, we get this little refrain, and all these things happen that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. 
what I want to do over the next few weeks is sort of hit rewind and go back to the original context where those prophecies were made. The birth of Jesus is not merely an actual historic event. It is an actual historic event. But as an actual historical event, that was predicted and prophesied and planned by God centuries before it happened. And there is a, a string of prophecies through the Old Testament, sort of road signs along the, the road to Bethlehem that are saying, there's going to be a Messiah, one who's going to be born, and here's where he's going to be born. And these are the circumstances surrounding this. And what I want to do, I think we will get a greater sense of the awesomeness of these prophecies if we go back and say, take a look at what were they doing in their original context? What were they saying to people living back in the time of Isaiah? What, what, what were they saying in 735 BC? Because I think when we come back and then look at them in their context in Matthew, they're going to have so much more meaning that would have been understood by Matthew's audience. Okay? They would have known their Old Testament and just the, the statement of a virgin will be with child and bring forth a son and they'll call his name Emmanuel conveyed a truckload of theological meaning. To Matthew's audience, and I want us to get that same sense today. So that name Emmanuel means God with us, because the baby in the manger is God incarnate. But when we back up to the book of Isaiah, and that's where we will be this morning, so take your Bibles and go with me to Isaiah chapter 7, we find this out. You're saying, what's the connection between fear and this promise of the baby in the manger? We find that in the context of, of, uh, of Isaiah 7, the promise of God with us was given to still the fears of the people of Judah. They were in a time of national panic, of national calamity. And this promise was not just a, hey, one day a virgin will have a child. Cool fact, right? But this is meant to be right here, right now. Take a deep breath and trust me, is what God is saying. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is the answer to Israel's fears. It's a call to faith. And the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, and Jesus says the same thing to us as it said to them, trust God, he is with you. Emmanuel answers our fears. So how does he do that? Well, we want to look at Isaiah 7 to find out. So follow along as we read. We'll read a few verses and we'll go along. Okay, so verse 14 is the one that is really the climax of this. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the prediction that Matthew picks up and says, hey, this is fulfilled in Jesus being born. But you'll notice that's verse 14. There's 13 verses before that that are building up to that, 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 that point. So let's start in verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it. But they could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate, that is, in alliance with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood, are moved with the wind. Okay, absolute abject panic and fear and terror. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth to meet Ahaz, thou, and shear Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Notice this. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us. And set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Let's hit pause there for a second thing to keep in mind is the promise of verse 14 is meant to be a sign to say the message of verses 1 to 9 is going to happen. So there's this army attacking Judah, besieging Jerusalem. The king is freaking out. He's not trusting God. God's saying, trust me, don't be afraid. And here's the sign to say that that's going to, that, that is a worthwhile thing to do. A virgin will conceive and have a, have a son. The promise of Emmanuel. So how does Emmanuel answer our fears? Well, first off, Emmanuel shows us, shows us that God's promises 
are true. God's promises are true. The promise God makes is really encapsulated in verse 7. This threat that you are fearing, it's not going to stand. It's not going to stand. It's not going to happen. Now, this is spoken to a bunch of people in 735 B.C. This is God's word to them at that time. Notice how verses 1 and 2 describe fear. Uh, Fear is a very universal human experience. And this is why we're saying Emmanuel is the answer to fear. Got a bunch of characters mentioned in verse 1 that you're like, I got a bunch of names, my eyes glaze over. Okay, let's just lay this out really quickly. We've got sort of several different kingdoms that are mentioned. There is Judah, which, is, which is, has the capital in Jerusalem, the southern two tribes. Their king is a guy by the name of Ahaz, and you can read about him in 2 Kings. He's actually a pretty wicked guy. He doesn't trust God. He gives into idolatry. Then you've got the group of people called Israel, which are the northern ten tribes, also called Ephraim. And we have Pekah, the son of Remaliah. They're, that's their king. So there's Pekah. He's in charge of Israel. And then we have the, the country of Syria, also called Aram. Um, and their king is Rezin. Here's what you got. The northern ten tribes, Israel, make an alliance with Syria. And they come and start beating up on little Judah. All right? So it would be like, here's Alabama and Michigan and Ohio and all these people are like, let's go and like put a new governor in charge down there. And they come. And so they're like rightfully freaking out because a big army is invading. Now, why are they invading? There's another kingdom we have to be aware of called Assyria. They're over in modern-day Iraq, okay, the Assyrian Empire. They are basically the bully of the ancient world. They're coming in and just beating up on all of the little kingdoms. And so over in Palestine, they're like, we need to make an anti-Assyrian alliance We need to sort of pledge our our security to each other, collective security, against the threat of Assyria, of the Assyrian Empire. They're basically saying, Judah, we want you to join our alliance so they don't come and take all of our stuff. So everybody is sort of quaking in their boots because of the Assyrians, this big empire that's just invading, sweeping everyone up. That's sort of the geopolitical setting. By the way, I tell you all of that to say this is not just sort of sentimental devotional thought. The events in the Bible are real historical events. Maybe you're here today, you, you sort of grew up in church and grandma taught you about Jesus, but you've since become sort of wiser and more enlightened to be like, Christianity is a load of hogwash. Well, something you need to contend with is the fact that the events that happened in the Bible really actually happened. And if the Bible is a historical document, you cannot reject Christianity without coming face to face with the reality that these, these things happened. In history, in time, you need to wrestle with that. Now, here's the point I want to make. The fear that Ahaz has, that's a tough sentence to say, the fear that Ahaz has is a real fear. If you read the account in Kings, the, the army of Syria and Israel is literally camping on his front lawn. Like, he can look out his window. There they are outside the city walls, and they're, they're besieging it. They're conquering towns. We would understand why he's afraid. If you, like, woke up in the morning and there was an army of people with spears and swords sitting out in your front lawn being like, hey, we want to kill you, and we want to put someone else on the throne in your place. We want to take your stuff and force you into our alliance. You would be scared as well. I'm not going to sit here and tell you today that fear is just a figment of your imagination. Fear is real. Fear has its reasons. So Ahaz could see the Syro-Ephraimite armies camped out around it. The fear is real. Listen, the things we fear are often very real possibilities. We fear potential failure. We fear losing opportunities. We fear embarrassment. We fear the loss of a relationship. We fear other people's opinions. We fear an unknown future. We fear seeing our kids grow up and then not need us anymore and that that sense of, "I, I, I need to be needed We fear losing control. We fear a changing world. We fear getting sick. We fear losing our job. Those are things that really do happen. They really do. And most of all, more than anything, the fear that we fear the most is the fear of dying. That's the big unknown. That's the big uncertainty. Ahaz feared losing his position as king. Verse 6 says they want to come in and put someone else and get rid of the Davidic king. Put someone else in who will be pliable to their desires. Isn't the fear of death the one that really lurks behind all the other ones? If I lose my job, if I lose my health, I can ultimately lose my life. Or I tie my whole life up in what other people think to where if I'm humiliated or exposed or rejected, 
I might as well die a thousand deaths. Real fear, because, hey, listen, fearing death makes sense because last time I checked, 10 out of 10 people will die. You make a headline, like, breaking news, in 2022, death rates hold steady at 100%. You are going to die. And we need to think about that. But I want you to note as well in verse 2, as we think about fear, yeah, fear is real, but fear is actually really foolish. Fear makes you do stupid stuff. That's what verse 2 is saying. They tell the house of David, they tell Ahaz, who's a descendant of David, Syria and Ephraim, okay, the northern ten tribes and Syria, they've formed an alliance against you. They're coming after you. And notice the result. His heart was moved in the heart of his people like the wind of the woods are moved with the wind. Uh, like the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. So it's like a hurricane coming through and all the trees are bending. His heart is just bent away. His faith is uprooted. And he's about to do something really foolish. Now here's the backdrop. The, 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 the real crisis that Ahaz is going to face is, am I going to trust God to deliver me from this threat? Or am I going to trust my own sort of political machinations? What Ahaz is going to do is he is going to go over to his arch enemy the Assyrian Empire, the big bully on the block that everybody's afraid of, and he's going to say, I'll give you all of the money, all of the treasure we have. We'll adopt your religion. We'll become vassals to you if you'll just come and deliver us from this threat. He would sooner trust his worst enemy than trust God. He's going to sort of make an alliance with the devil. right? He's going to be like, come deliver me from the short-term thing, and then you can have my soul. Whatever that book and that story and literature we all read. Uh, The fears were real, but they are foolish. Same is true in our lives. Think about how fears you have in your life are real, lead you to unbelief, and lead you to disobedience. You've got that family member who does not know Jesus, and God has put you in their life to tell them about Jesus. And you know that one day they are going to pass into eternity, but every time the thought comes to your mind, I need to tell them that they're a sinner and they need... But what if they... What if they get angry? What what if they reject me? What if they won't talk to me again? What if the relationship gets lost because I, I sort of try to force the issue of the gospel? That's fear leading you to disobey God. God tells us to be witnesses, to tell others about Christ. Or God calls you to end a relationship you know is sinful. You're like, you should not be with this person, you shouldn't be living with them, shouldn't be dating them, or this, this, this friendship is leading me away from Christ. But fear of saying, ending that sinful relationship, I've got so much emotion tied, I, I fear losing that security that comes from it, even though I know it is wrong. Fear is foolish, it leads us to disobey and distrust God. It's fear, you know, you think about the stock market, we all know, like, you should buy low and sell high. But you know why that doesn't happen? Is people are like, they're looking at their stocks and they're like, oh no, the stock market's going down and I know I'm not going to retire for another 40 years, but I better sell. Okay, fear causes you to, 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 to do the opposite. It causes you to buy high and sell low. Fear trembles before men, but shrugs its shoulders before God. I'm afraid of what people think, but I don't really care what God thinks. Why? Because in my mind, the people I fear are much bigger than a God who seems very distant. Fear paralyzes us when we should act. When you know, I know the right thing to do, but I'm afraid of taking action. Because if I choose to do one thing, that means saying no to a bunch of other things. I'm afraid of what the consequences would be. Fear will lead us to compromise our values. Fear will muzzle our witness. Fear leads us to cover our sin. Rather than saying, I'm going to confess my sin before God or to those who I need to confess it to. Instead, fear says, I'm going to try to cover it lest I... Lose some influence. Fear leads us to try to to control our children instead of nurturing them. Fear leads us to become enraged instead of becoming compassionate towards a world gone mad around us. Fear leads us to become hostages to other people's opinions. That's where Ahaz and the people of Judah are at. And the message of Emmanuel, God with us, is meant to counter that. That, that's, the, that's the point I want us to get. Now, notice how he does that in verses 3 to 9. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah. So now there's going to be a message from Yahweh to this king whose heart is being blown over by fear. Go now to meet Ahaz, and he's going to tell him to go to the conduit of the upper pool. Okay, Jerusalem does not have a good water supply at this point. They're requiring on water sort of coming above ground into the city. If you're going to be under siege, you've got to make sure you've got a good 
uh, good water supply. By the way, Hezekiah figured that out and bored a tunnel, um, Hezekiah's tunnel to keep the water underground within the city. You can still go see that today. Uh, so here he is looking at the, 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 the water coming in. He's there in the Fuller's Field, the place where they do the laundry. I love how specific that is. Now notice he says, bring your son Sheer Jashub. Why is, he, why is this like bring your kid to work day for the prophet Isaiah? Like what's going on with this? Well, the name Sheer Jashub is meant to be a message. The name means a remnant shall return. It's sort of ominous on one hand to me like, just a small slice of the people will return and be preserved. But there's also a promise to say, you will not be obliterated. It's supposed to be an encouragement there, a call to faith. Now notice verse 4. Here's the heart of the message. Say unto him, take heed and be quiet, fear not. Okay, Ahaz is acting in fear. He's sending off emissaries to the Assyrian king. He is selling out the soul of his nation for a short-term deliverance. Neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and for the son of Remaliah. He's calling him to faith. He's calling him to say, don't be afraid. Trust God's promises. Proof of it, Emmanuel, God is with us. The, pr- the presence of God calls us to believe even when there's hardship. It says, fear not. Now, notice how, how God views the threat. God God sees the threat. God's not just saying here, don't worry, be happy. The glass is half full. Everything will turn out, don't worry. No, God does see see the threat. Hey, the fears that we have in our lives that are indeed real, God doesn't sit there in heaven pretending, come on, nothing's going on. God sees the reality of the fears and then says, I am bigger than anything that you fear. That's the message. Notice how God views them. The the threats that Ahaz is like, man, these threats are so big. God's like, "Uh, yeah, so... Those are like logs that were on the fire that have burned out. They're like smoking firebrands. They're burned out cigarette butts. They are fireworks that have already burned and gone off, and it's just a little burnt wrapper that's left. That's the, the thing that you fear. That's what it is in God's eyes. God is infinitely bigger than anything that you fear. So God even recounts the inner counsels of the alliance. Like God knows stuff that even Ahaz doesn't. Just because, verse 5... Syria and Ephraim, okay, Israel and Syria, the son of, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Okay, so the, the, the policy of the alliance is regime change. Ahaz and the Davidic kingship, they're too independent, we've got to get rid of them. God's like, I know that, I'm aware of that, and I'm still calling you to trust in me. So here's the message, verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God. Okay, when we see that, that's God saying, slow down, hold your horses, and listen in faith. Thus says the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the God who is sovereign over heaven and earth, the God who is the creator, the God who is the I am, the God who rules all things according to the counsel of his will. That God says, it shall not stand. Neither shall it come to pass. The thing that you fear won't happen. Why? Because God had made a promise to David, and Ahaz is a descendant of David, and God will be faithful to his promise. Verse 8, the head of Syria. Okay, who's in charge of Samaria? Well, Damascus, that's the capital. And the head of Damascus is Rezin, the king. It's like, listen, you are fearing a mere man. A mere man who's in charge of this kingdom. You're afraid of him? And then he says, within three score and five years, within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, that it be not, will not be a people. Here's what would happen. Within 65 years, in fact, within 10 years, the Assyrians would come in and wipe out Syria. They would wipe out uh, Israel. And then within 65 years, they would come and just settle new people in that territory where there was no more distinct nation. This is the point. God is saying, I see the threat And I overrule the threat. So do not be afraid. Now, here's the decision that Ahaz has to make. Look at verse 9. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. Same deal, mere men. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. God is saying, all right, you need to trust my promises here, Ahaz. But here's the question. Do you view the threats as bigger than me or me as bigger than the threats? What is bigger, the people that you fear or God? That's the decision. Which one do you fear, 
God is bigger. Now, a life of fear. Listen, a lot of Christians today are living a life of total fear. What's going to happen? The government's going to do this and conspiracy theory that and panic this. A life of fear reveals a view of God that is anemic. A life of fear reveals a defective theology. You've got a God who, yeah, he's helpful, but he's not all-powerful. Now, you say, well, of course I confess the sovereignty and the omnipotence and the power of God. Isn't there a difference between the theology we have on paper and the theology we actually live? We can all say, yeah, I believe God is almighty, the almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, and all of these things have an orthodox confession. But the way I actually live is to say that, well, but I actually think that some group of people in Davos are actually sovereign. Like, that's ridiculous. God is the one who is infinitely bigger than anything and everything. God with us calls us to contemplate and behold a God who says, all the nations of the earth are like a drop of the bucket. Just think about that image. Say, all the nations of the earth are like the dust on the bathroom scale, Isaiah 40. No comparison to God. Instead of seeing God here and threats here, it needs to be the other way around. God here, threats here. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas? The Lord will give you a sign. A virgin shall have a child and call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This child is a promise to say, the God who makes those promises keeps those promises. He promised a virgin would conceive, have a child, and guess what? It happened. A virgin birth is a pretty huge miracle. Right? Jesus entered the world through a door that said no entrance. And then he rose from the dead, leaving the world through a door that said no exit. Okay, he is, this is an incredible miracle uh, for, for a virgin conception, a virgin birth to occur. Scientifically impossible. Okay, I've used this illustration before, but if someone can slam dunk on like a full NBA-sized basketball goal or net or whatever you call it, I'm not a sports guy. But if you can do that, the little, like the little one that your, your kids have that's like three feet tall, not a problem, right? If God can sort of slam dunk on the virgin birth thing, he can t- keep every other promise. The birth of Jesus is God saying, and by the way, all the other promises I make, I'm strong enough to keep as well, so do not fear. I'm with you. So will you fear Assyria? Will you put your faith in tiglath Pileser? that's the name of the, or will you put your faith in Yahweh? Will you trust God or your ultimate enemy? And the fact that God came into our world in the form of a little baby in Bethlehem is proof positive of his utter trustworthiness. He's not abandoned us. He will not abandon us. So the question is, will you trust him now? If you're not a Christian here today, and by the way, let me define my terms By Christian, I don't mean cultural Christian. I don't mean someone who just has grown up in church, though I'm thankful for the exposure you have to the gospel. I don't simply mean someone who would identify as Christian as opposed to Muslim or atheist or Hindu. By Christian, I mean someone who has had an encounter with the living God, who has put their faith in Jesus alone, has been radically changed by the gospel. Someone has a real relationship with God. If that's not you today... The great, the great promise you need to believe is this one, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The promise you need to believe today is the promise that Christ died for your sins on the cross and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You need to believe the promise that God can and will forgive every sin and all sin and take away your guilt and your shame and the penalty of health and wrath that you deserve on his son the moment you put your trust in him, in repentance and faith. Now, moving on, I, I want to show a second way that Emmanuel answers our fear. He answers our fear by showing that God, God's promises are true. God's promises are true. But the second way that Emmanuel answers our fear is that he shows us that God's presence is real. Now, I'm sort of dialing into one word, and it's that word, Emmanuel, which means God with us. The baby is God saying, I'm with my people. I'm present. Now let's pick up in verse 10 of our text. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, so another segment in the prophecy, we're just letting that kind of outline our text this morning. 
Ask thee for a sign. So God knows that Ahaz's faith is wavering, that fear is driving him to make a foolish alliance with his worst enemy. Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the heights above. So the, the, the lowest hell or the highest heaven. Ask for a miraculous sign that says God's with us. It's kind of like Hezekiah, who would be a descendant of Ahaz, who would say, hey, make the sundial go backwards. That would be pretty cool to prove that God's at work. He's asking for, he's like, ask for a miracle. Ask for God to, to, to prove this to you, to fortify your faith, to show that you don't need to go make an alliance with the Assyrians. You don't need to fear the army camped out on your front lawn. God will take care of it. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. It's really pious. He says, I'm not going to put God to the test. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't need a sign. I don't need a miracle. He knows the story in the Old Testament where God says, don't put me to the test. You know, don't, don't sort of be like, I'll trust you if. Listen, there's a difference between piety and faith. This is a, this is a statement of rank unbelief. God's told you to do something. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to ask for a sign. And then I'm going to dress it up in very sort of religious-sounding language. Piety, faith are not the same thing. Going to church, putting money in an offering plate, doing religious stuff is not the same as a real relationship with God. Ahaz did not have a saving relationship with God, as far as we know. He was an idolater. He was a wicked man. And then he uses pious language, I won't put God to the test. Verse 13, and he said, Isaiah, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? Will ye weary God, my God, also? So notice the language has switched from your God to my God. Like, okay, you don't really have much going here with you and God. So you, you've been a burden to the people you rule. Wicked rulers are oppressive to the people over whom they rule. Ahaz was no exception. So not only are you wearying men through your oppressive policies and the way that you're, con- you're, you're conducting the nation's affairs, you're wearying God through your unbelief. Therefore, verse 14 the Lord himself shall give you a sign. This sign is not one that's given to be like, your faith is awesome, here's a sign. This is a sign almost of judgment. To say, okay, you won't ask, you won't trust God. Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim deserted from Judah, even the king of Assyria. So to Ahaz, God is saying there's going to be a virgin. Literally, the the Hebrew says the virgin. Uh, Someone specific at that point who's going to have a child. And the child is going to say to you, God with us. And notice the point of this child's birth. Verse 16, before the child will know to refuse the good, choose, refuse the evil, choose the good. In Hebrew thought, when a child came to their bar mitzvah, they were now responsible for their decisions. Okay, you hit the age of 12, you're now a man morally responsible. He's saying, okay, there's going to be a child who's born, and before he is bar mitzvahed, before he is 12 years old, Ephraim, Syria, the two people that you're fearing, they won't even have kings anymore. And something else. By the time that happens, a great judgment's going to fall on the land because of your unbelief. So there's both a promise of, hey, the threat you fear now is going to go away, but an even worse threat's going to come because of your unbelief. That's what the message meant to Ahaz. It's actually very straightforward when you read this. Now, how is this fulfilled in the short term? Look at chapter 8. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, take thee a great roll. He's not taking a trip to Lambert's, but get get a scroll. And write in it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a name. So there's a kid who's going to be born whose name is going to be Meher Shalal Hashbaz. If you're looking for, for baby names, I highly recommend that one. <laughs> and I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to write this down like God said. Other people are going to watch it. It's going to be notarized. And I went unto the prophetess. And she conceived and bare a son. Notice how that language reflects that. And the Lord said to me, call his name Mayor Shallow Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. 
Notice how similar Isaiah 8, verse 4 is to Isaiah 7, verse 16. So in one sense, there's a fulfillment. Isaiah is going to marry this girl called the prophetess. We can assume that his first wife has passed away. He's going to marry her at this point of their marriage. She's a virgin. He marries her. She has a child. He's going to say the child's name is Meir Shal Hashbaz, which means making speed to the spoil, he hastens to the prey. Kind of ominous. There's going to be quick judgment that's going to fall. And he's going to say, this child's existence is going to say, God's with us, trust God's promises. But I don't think that's really the ultimate fulfillment of this. That's almost like a pattern to be like, hey, there's this child who's born, God's going to keep his promises, say that he's with us. And here's why I say that. This is pointing to something far greater than something even in Isaiah's day. Yes, there's sort of a short-term pattern that's laid out, a down payment, if you will, on the final fulfillment of it. For one thing, notice verse back in verse 11. Ask a sign either in the depths or the height above. Like, ask for a miracle. Isaiah getting married and having a kid is not really a supernatural, unusual sort of miracle. That's fairly normal. Someone in that time marrying someone who's a virgin, that was normal. We're looking to something that goes beyond that, something that is miraculous. You see, the sign is going to be fulfilled, yeah, in the short term, for Ahaz to be like, hey, the people you fear aren't going to last before the kid grows up. Enemy are going to be gone. No, this finds ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, verse 23, which Brian read, the virgin birth of Jesus through Mary, that's the ultimate fulfillment of this. You see, the sign to Ahaz of short-term deliverance, who'll be delivered from the short-term threat, is meant to point them to say, you're going to be delivered ultimately and eternally from the greatest threat, from sin itself. Now, remember the name Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus would not just signify. Okay, Mayor Shalal Hashbaz in Isaiah's day would be a reminder, oh, look, God kept his word. Jesus doesn't just point to the reality that God is with us. Jesus himself is God with us. Why? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. So Matthew 1.23 that Brian read earlier draws a straight line from Isaiah 7.14 to the virgin birth of Jesus by Mary. Jesus is God with us. He is proof that God is with us. And he is not just a sign of God's presence. He is God's presence. So what does this mean for us? Well, it shows us the reality that God is with us. A baby in a manger. Proof positive that God has not abandoned us. Proof positive that God will never abandon us. Emmanuel is ultimately Jesus. He is God with us now and God with us forever. Now, let me say this again. If you are not a believer, God is not with you, nor is he for you. In fact, you are at war and at hostility with God. I think sometimes we read this Emmanuel, oh, God with us, that's really nice. We'll put it on Christmas cards, and it's just true for everyone, and it's nice sentimentality. If you're not a believer in Jesus, God is not with you. Only as we come to God through Christ are we reconciled with God and we get the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and the promise of God with us for all eternity. Now think about this, beloved Christians. God with us is the highest privilege. You can trace out the storyline of the Bible all the way back in the Garden of Eden. What was the Garden of Eden? It was basically a temple where Adam and Eve could meet with God. God walks, talks with them. Sin, of course, wrecks that. They're kicked out of the garden. You get cherubim at the, at the entrance of the garden, guarding the way to say, you can't come back into God's presence without sin being dealt with. God comes along, and he has Israel build a tabernacle, and there's a curtain before the Holy of Holies, and what's on it? Cherubim, guarding the entrance, saying, you can't come in unless sin is dealt with. Temple is built. What do you have again? Cherubim on there, saying, you can't come into God's presence. You can't really have God with you without sin being dealt with us. You can't come here without a sacrifice, without a priest. Then Jesus comes into this world, and the word God was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And Jesus dies on the cross as the final sacrifice, as the final Passover, the final Yom Kippur. And what happens? The veil is rent from top to bottom saying the way is open for sinners to come into the presence of God. And the storyline of the Bible terminates in the new heaven and the new earth where God says, I will dwell among them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The entire story of the Bible is how sinful people can have God dwelling in their midst and how sinful people can have a relationship with God. And as Christians, we've got it. It's ours. Now, how aware are you of God's presence in your daily life? You go to work in the morning. Are you thinking, I'm doing this, me and God, going to work? Coming to church today, I'm not just hanging out with all my friends, but God dwells in the midst of this people. Listen, if God's presence is our highest privilege, then enjoying a relationship with God should be our highest priority. To to read the Word so I can see who God is and be aware of who He is, to dialogue with Him in prayer, to meditate on His Word, to really know Him. Paul said the ultimate goal of his life was that I may know Him. Jesus said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not just go to church and read your Bible, but love God. The affections are activated with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Enjoy his presence. Have a relationship with him. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Can you you relate with that? Can you track with that? God's presence is real, and one day we will see him face to face. Now, the final way that Emmanuel... God with us, drives out our fear is that he shows us that God's purposes are invincible. God's purposes are invincible. Listen, if he can bring a baby into the world through a virgin birth, he can do anything he wants. And the message was to Ahaz. It will not stand, it won't happen. What I want, what what I have determined, that's going to be what's going to happen. That's the message God conveys. So what is God's purpose in the world? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, we find out the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God's purpose to save sinners through Jesus, that is an invincible purpose. Nothing will thwart it. Nothing will stand in the way of it. It will be accomplished. You see, the threat that you and I face is not invasion from Syria or Assyria or Babylon It's not the alliance between Ephraim and Aram. It's the alliance of sin and death and hell. The danger that we face is the wrath of God Almighty. It is the deadly poison of unbelief seeping through our souls. And it's the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 that turns it all back. Jesus coming into this world and dying on the cross, satisfying God's wrath, defeating death, defeating hell, defeating sin in our place. Now, why did God have to come in the flesh? He's here on a search and rescue mission. Imagine you're out in the woods, and you're you're hiking, and you fall down a cliff, and you break your leg in like eight places. Let's make it a little ridiculous. You have no ability to rescue yourself. So you pick up your cell phone. you got like one bar, like 2% battery. You call the helpline, and they're like, hey, we don't have anyone who can come, but we'll do kind of a virtual rescue. Like, just stay on the line. We'll FaceTime you. That's not going to do anything for you, right? Text messages won't do anything for you. You need someone to actually come in, the per, in person with a helicopter, with a gurney, with dogs to come and find where you're at and rescue you to get you out. And the same is true with our sin. We needed someone to come to where we are at and take us and rescue us. Jesus has to assume a full human nature so that he can save a full human nature. He's going to save us body, soul, and spirit, so Jesus takes on a full human body, soul, and spirit, so he can save us in every way. Salvation is God's invincible purpose. It's the eternal anchor we have that secures our vessel in the storms of life. So everything else can be falling to pieces in your life, and we can always hold on to the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the foundation on which we build our lives. It's the north star to guide us on the darkest night. Which means this, everything else in your life can be going crazy because you're like, I don't see how this helps me with my fear about paying the bills next week. The fact that God's promise of salvation is invincible tells me this. Whatever happens to you, Christian, whatever happens to you, nothing eternal 
changes. I love that statement. It's from our friend Andy Gleiser when his wife was diagnosed with cancer. They're sitting in a doctor's office, just got the news, really emotional, really hard, and he looks over at her and says, this is hard, but nothing eternal has changed. That's a way to deal with very real hardship and difficulty in your life. Yeah, it's still hard, and there's still some fears, but the fears have been answered by the reality that nothing eternal changes. How, what, what is God's purpose? It's to save. But here's what we find out, back to Emmanuel. We continue to find out things about this child. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Your Emmanuel, is this just Isaiah's kid? Like, no, we find out that this child, this promise is someone so much greater. For unto us a child is born. Okay, this child is born, you're like, hey, this is just, no, this is someone greater than Isaiah's son. This is someone greater than Ahaz's descendant. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Can't help when I read that without getting the soundtrack of Handel's Messiah going through my mind, you know, with, uh, with that. But here's the point. Emmanuel means not only is God with us to save us, he's God with us to one day rule over the world. God's kingdom will be established. Ahaz was a lousy king, horrible king. In fact, the, the lion of, of David would eventually be cut off with the, with the exile. Jesus comes back as the true and the better David. Jesus succeeds where Ahaz fails miserably. He's the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament kings, and one day he is coming, beloved, to rule and reign over this earth. Civilizations are going to decline. Nations will crumble. Cultures will corrode. Evil will spread. But Jesus still reigns and will reign forever. And that is our hope in life and in death. He is Emmanuel, God with us, who will one day come back to rule over us. What does this mean for us? Well, I think the reality of Emmanuel should invigorate our worship. We've gathered here today to worship and maybe it seems kind of crazy. We don't actually see the God that we worship. You look around the church, there's no like pictures of God around here that we sort of venerate. We've got a cross back here. It's just a symbol of what Jesus has done. We worship a God that we cannot see. And sometimes if we're not careful, that can lead us to be like, how oh, I worship doesn't matter. So I'll mumble my way through the songs. I'll let my mind wander through the prayers. I'll scroll Twitter while the sermon is going. I won't take this too seriously, but what if you really believed God is with us? What if you really believed that the God that we worship is present here in a unique kind of way? The God we worship is not an aloof God who can't be bothered with our problems or hear our praise. How would you sing? How would you really sing if Jesus were sort of standing over here off to the side, physically standing over here, and we're singing to him and worshiping him? I would guarantee you every one of us would let it rip. You wouldn't be worried about, well, I can't sing in tune. You would just sing to him because you're like, it's Jesus and he's our Savior, and let's just sing out to him. How would you pray if Jesus were actually here and you were bringing your petitions to him and he were, was leaning down and listening and nodding and being like, I, I hear you, my child. How would you obey if Jesus got up here behind the pulpit and actually delivered the sermon today to say, fear not? Well, the reality of Emmanuel is to say that in every way, Jesus is present here. And when the word of God is rightly preached, when we preach the word of God in context, it is the word of God. It might as well be Jesus here saying, fear not. He might as well be standing here listening to us pray and listening to us sing. This should invigorate our worship. This should invigorate your private worship. It should invigorate our corporate worship. The fact that Emmanuel is God with us should embolden our witness. Matthew begins, thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. You know how Matthew ends? Go make disciples among all nations, and lo, I am what? With you always, even to the end of the age, amen. Matthew begins and ends with a promise of God is with you. Now, why does he say God is with you? Because he's about to send his people out on this incredibly difficult mission. Go to all nations and make disciples. Go tell them that King Jesus reigns. You ever feel like you come to witness to someone to tell them about Jesus? You're like, I don't feel like it's my place. I don't feel like I have proper authorization. 
I don't feel like I can kind of come in and tell them how to live their lives. Jesus being with you is kind of like you're given a task by the CEO, and the CEO actually comes in with you and is like, and this guy is now in charge of this department. Whatever he says is what I say. Okay, you've got proper authorization. It's not just saying, hey, come in for dinner, but mom said come in for dinner. He's actually with you, giving you the authorization. And Emmanuel empowers our contentment. Hebrews 13 says, let your conversation, let your lifestyle be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Interesting, he doesn't say, because I've given you everything you need, but because he says, I am everything you need and I'm always with you. If we would really, truly take to heart the reality that God is with us, not just as the baby in the manger, but as God dwelling in our hearts. It should give us boldness in our witnessing. It should give us passion in our worship. It should give us contentment in our daily lives. It should give us confidence as we look to the future, not not despair, not fear, not panic, because we know that one day he's going to rule, he's going to return, He's the wonderful counselor. When you're facing chaotic perplexity, he's the one who can counsel you far, far better than any human being. When you're facing powerful problems, he's the almighty God. For our short-sighted perspectives, he's the father of eternity. For our helplessness or seeming helplessness in a world gone mad, he's the eternal king. So here's my plea to you today. Meditate on Christ Develop an awareness of his presence. He is with us, but we're often not paying attention to him. Like being in a room with someone and you're just kind of absorbed watching a football game on your device. They might as well not be there. Put the phone away, so to speak. Maybe even literally and be like, Jesus is with me and I'm going to talk to him and I'm going to dialogue with him. And I'm going to have a real relationship with him. Feast on him for your hungry heart. Find in him all you need. Run to him. Father, we praise you for the promise of Emmanuel, God with us.